Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing a canticle for Leibowitz, the final chapters, chapters 26 through, or 25 to the end. Yeah. Uh, and David is not here today, so it's just Sean and I. And as we were, Sean, as we were talking off the air, like, what is there to even talk about about this book, right? Yeah. Like, how are we going to fill space and time? Hard to say. Hard to say. Yeah. So we're going to give it our best shot. <laughs> I texted you in the group chat earlier, Sean, that I was like physically tired after reading the end of this book. I was not yeah. ready. I don't I don't know what I expected, but <laughs> I was like not ready for the end of this book. Is that no. your experience the first yeah, time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even even returning to it, uh, I'm never quite prepared. You just have it just has to happen to you. There is, man, so much. Like, how did he think about this? Like, sometimes when I read books, I'm like, how did this guy, like, come up with this idea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to imagine him. I really wish I knew more about Walter Miller as a person. Um, you know, just we've talked earlier in the series about kind of the biographical high points. But uh, I'm curious about him and his internal life because it's hard to imagine someone having a great amount of distance from this kind of writing and not being somehow like these characters, whether in his better moments or his worst moments. I don't know. I, uh, it makes me wonder so much about Walter Miller. Yeah. Well, I thought about him often because, well, first let me say, listeners, if you have not read the end of this novel, if you are listening ahead of your reading, you should not Spoiler do that. Spoiler alert. There are many, many books that works just fine. But for this book, you should probably push pause, go yep. finish the novel, and then yep, come finish. back and listen. Uh, you don't want it spoiled, I promise you. Uh, and you will, you, I think you will thank me later. But I thought about him often in reading this because there is such an emphasis at the end of this book on the question of suicide and mortal sin right. and imagining him converting and then committing suicide after writings with such poignancy in this novel was yeah. like terribly moving to me. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's, it makes it all the more heartbreaking mm. uh, to know that he contemplated the act in such an intimate way. And even well, yes. He, yeah, go ahead. Well, and invented characters undergoing such profound suffering. Right. That yeah. It feels even to the reader, even with an understanding of the the Catholic doctrine of mortal sin, to and he he gives us these characters that even to me as I'm reading, I'm thinking, this is a moral dilemma that yeah. I I hope never to walk through myself. Right. And it's hard to stand uh, aloof and and judge from, you know, a critical readerly perspective. It's so poignant and painful. Right. Yeah. It felt very much like it, it felt like an emotional ordeal reading the end of this novel. And that's not always true, even with sad novels, even with movie novels, even, you know, I, even with novels with really hard things. And then this was particularly poignant for me. Yeah. And I thought that he he resolved that as much as it could be resolved. He resolved that moral dilemma in such a beautiful and unexpected way, uh, but um, not an unheard of way. And, and just in having the the abbot 
come to the point where he rebukes himself for asking someone to suffer what he hasn't suffered, uh, and then finding himself in a position where he can suffer and praying that uh, that that he would enter into that suffering that he's now that he's commanded other people to to embrace. And, yes, uh, I don't know how you could have found a better. It was beautiful uh, and solution. the yeah. story about the cat, right? Yeah, and that how the cat was trapped and the legs yeah. broken and 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 here he endures he endures something very similar um and so it is given to him this it reminded me of loris in that way and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. another novel that that we read on the show and that the grace that is the grace of suffering and how suffering can be both mercy and justice in our lives and redeeming yeah and another part of that beautiful um kind of symmetry that you spoke about is the intervention of God in the lives of these multiple people who are about to commit mortal sin by right. by committing suicide. And so could it be that the end of the world in that is 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 a mercy. Is yeah. a mercy, right? Not yeah. not a cheating, not a Deus ex machina, right? But a but a but not God in the machine, but God in the intervening grace of the destiny of the world. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of um, certain Flannery O'Connor stories where that mm. kind of thing happens. The river in particular uh, mm. is a story that I, I think of often, but uh, in, in these kinds of conversations, but where it culminates in what seems like a, a great tragedy, but a tragedy that actually spares the, the more terrible suffering of an innocent person. Right. Right. That, I mean, that brings us to uh, maybe to the more towards the beginning of the reading. Uh, yeah, we should probably go back. To I know. Right. <laughs> um, and with brother Joshua, um, who is called upon to take upon this, take up this great burden of, you know, yeah. monks in space. I was like, yeah, they are. There's a the monk. Finally, space. monks in space. Right? I knew they were coming. We never get to see the monks in space, though. This is true. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed in that, but I suppose <laughs> we can, I suppose I can imagine monks in space myself. Yep. But uh, so Brother Joshua is called upon to take this mission. Uh, uh, out of our like out of the world quite literally right. <laughs> um and and so one of the things that you and I had discussed back and forth off the air that I wanted to bring onto there is this question of his vocation and uh I thought of that while you were talking about the end end of the novel mm-hmm. uh, but here what in at the beginning of the reading when he's wrestling with what his vocation is and he has that very profound you know internal conflict with himself about hope and despair and what it is that the spaceship means for humanity um and and for the end so i i wanted to get your thoughts on that what is that internal conflict about for him and does does he resolve it that's a good question uh, so you can mark off your um, bingo scorecard at home. Uh, <laughs> but but it's a it's a good question or an interesting question because I think that the answer is yes and maybe. Uh, I think he resolves it. I'll start at the at the end and work forward. I think he resolves it enough uh, to 
accept the task. Hmm. I don't know that he resolves it in an ultimate sense because the the question of hope and despair there seems to be a pretty universal question about uh, not just about mankind's relationship to the earth, though that's part of it, but also mankind's relationship to himself and his own nature. Uh, so he does he does imagine or he wonders if this mission into space is an act of despair, admitting that no amount of prayers to God could possibly uh, result in the saving of the world. And therefore, we are by doing this, we are taking matters into our own hand, throwing up our, our hands and, you know, sort of admitting that we don't think God can solve this problem. Uh, but he rebukes himself. He calls that a temptation of the devil and, and instead uh, sees it as an act of hope that uh, rather than presumption, that mm. to, uh, to insist that there's something particularly special about the earth and to stay there would be to presume uh, that you know more or better than God and uh, and maybe even that you know man is owed some particular state uh, in this world and that the act of hope rather is uh, being willing to be led out wherever uh, God <laughs> sees fit to uh, to open the door uh, which I think uh, was compelling and, mm. and seemed to ring true. Uh, and it was also convicting because we uh, think there are all, all kinds of versions of that kind of dilemma or choice in our in our own lives and culture that uh, we're tempted to. I always I think of one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is uh, Hebrews thirteen. Uh, we have here no enduring city, uh, right? But rather, there's this exhortation to go out of the city and follow Christ, but even if it's into the wilderness, and uh, it seems to be what what he lands on there mm. as as the real uh, task and act of hope uh, because it's an act of faith. Right. I I thought there was, it, it seemed clear to me, and this is an experience I also had in reading The Sparrow, which this book reminds me of someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the author, um, Mary Doria Russell wrote the, the author of The Sparrow wrote the um a prologue to this book, not the That's prologue. Right. What am I thinking? The of? introduction. Thank you. Yeah. That seems easier than prologue. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Um. Anyway, I could tell that both books were written with like a heart of compassion towards the church, like a an, an intellectual ascent towards the church, but yeah. not yet Christians, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I know that Walter Miller converts to Catholicism after the writing of this book. Um, mm -hmm. And Mary Doria Russell was raised Catholic and then ended up becoming, converting to Buddhism and kind of was grateful for her Catholic upbringing, but didn't identify herself that way anymore. And I could tell that in reading the books because in both books, there's uh, the invocation to hope with within the story doesn't extend beyond this life, either yeah. of them. Even in the yeah. conversation with the woman and her daughter, uh, he um the abbot does not remind her of her hope for the kingdom to come right he invokes her based on this is a sin do not do it i did, i i you know adjure you for your obedience to god but the command to not 
commit suicide in scripture is based on the idea that there is a better world that is that that we're going to be given right that we're going to inherit and that that is missing from the story and i think on a literary sense that works Sure. Um, yeah. Because this isn't this is a this is a novel. It's not intended to be a theological treatise. Um, but the absence of that, like that concrete hope, uh, lends so much more pathos than to the end of the novel because we don't know what's going to happen, and nobody, even even the even the religious figures, are um, you know invoking the hope of the of the future kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that the emphasis here on whether whether humanity is worth saving, I think that's the other part of of uh, the dilemma. Mm-hmm. Like, should we we bother taking this show on the road, uh, or or whether humanity is uh, hopeless and uh, just doomed to keep destroying itself and and if if that's the case, you know, is it is it worth saving? Uh, I think it is connected to that as well, right? Is there anything um, in enduring or eternally of of value in the human race that that carries beyond this life and justifies prolonging the life of of humanity? Right. The dilemma that Brother Joshua was experiencing, and and that all of them are in this third section of the novel reminded me so much. I'm reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia with my uh, senior students in their senior seminar right now. And we're just finishing the last battle this week. And it reminded me so much of, of the last battle and that the first two thirds of that book are all about them trying to save Narnia from the invaders from the Kalormans. And 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 there's this haunting, growing sense of of um of grief and dread within the story. Yeah. I think Lewis yeah. builds that so well. You see how much the decline <laughs> yes, the decline yeah. of Narnia is an analog for the for modernity. <laughs> um and <laughs> Uh, and we recognize our own failings and but we see we don't see yet beyond the stable door in the first two thirds of the novel. And they're rightfully defending and fighting and dying for Narnia. That yeah. is the right thing for them to do. Uh, they are entirely invested in in saving the world from the from the wicked invaders. And they're right to do that. But then once they get past the stable door and they are in paradise, that is their that is their gift. And it was all worth it. Right. And and that I think is the question is raised but not resolved in this book. Um rightfully so, because this is an adult book, <laughs> whereas <laughs> the last battle is a children's book. And I'm grateful for both. I'm grateful for both perspectives and raising the question of is this place worth fighting for? Mm-hmm. Uh, is in, in in spite of all of this cyclical historic these events that uh, keep repeating themselves, we never keep learning from them. We continue to degrade ourselves, uh, and and the book's very clear that that their society is not on the side of the right. Yeah, they're not the good guys. Uh, and even though 
we we get a bit of the propaganda telling them that they are, which again is another great analog for modernity. <laughs> yeah. And so what do we do with that, I think, is such a powerful, powerful question. So is, I mean, is this book despairing? Is it hopeful? Do you want to put that question off as we talk about a couple other things first? Uh, sure, let's come back to it. Let's okay. come back to it. But we have to talk about that. Yes, right? agreed. Agreed. So the structure of the novel, um, this third part is different, thousands of years separated, right? We have three yeah. very distinct um, eras in history that are, and no overlapping, well, you know, one overlapping character, I guess. <laughs> we'll talk about um so now that we're done now that we're at the end how do we think of these three parts um of the book as parts and as a whole i mean there's there's a remarkable uh amount of unity i think it's a well uh well devised scheme and uh well constructed novel but i i did and maybe it's uh, it's hard to be totally objective because unless unless i had read the first two-thirds of the novel and then stopped <laughs> uh, but with the last third so fresh in my mind it seems like there's an a deepening sincerity or earnestness maybe in in the authorial voice or in the narrative voice and maybe that's just because of the characters that we uh, you know, see through the eyes of in this section. What do you? How do you? How do you feel about that? Or what? What do you I think that's make right. of that? And I think that's part of why I was not prepared for the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that there was a a satirical humor that uh, that balanced or harmonized kind of the earlier well i don't want to say harmonized because i think that the last part's actually more harmonized so that's the it at least word. it created but, a certain kind of distance yes like it seems yes, to disappear agree. i think that yeah. that's a really good way of putting it and then at the end there was the writing like the whole tone of that end part was was so fitting for the for what was actually happening there's no yeah. more satire um even even the two-headed woman in Rachel, which we are going to talk about, uh, <laughs> began as even began in this section as a little bit of winking at the audience, like, look at this weird lady with two this heads, is weird. right? Yeah. Like, um, and then and then it takes on this weight of meaning that is far beyond what I was prepared for, uh, based on the tone of the earlier part of the novel. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I one of my least favorite question, my least favorite question about books is, did the author do that on purpose, right? I'm always yeah, like, yes, yeah. that's why we're still reading this novel. <laughs> of course, Shakespeare yeah. did it on purpose, right? Um, um, uh, but I think that's worth looking at here, whether that, uh-huh. like you said, is, is is this a change in the author or is this an intentional narrative development? In yeah. your opinion, I guess there's no way for yeah. us to know. Right. Um, do you, you're, are you posing that I'm question? Asking. I'm asking. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I, I, like I said, it's all you can do is is guess. It seems like maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, Miller seems very capable of identifying uh, when and how to adjust uh, his 
tone, but I also can't help but feel that there's some kind of uh, sincere and involuntary uh, deepening maybe of the engagement of the author here. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. Um, to me, the middle section carried a lot more intellectual weight than motion, than emotional weight. Yeah. But here at the end that changes and that is, I mean, structurally appropriate, like that for the, for the, for the thematic for just for the plot of course as the world is ending we pay more attention (laughs) and grieve more and think more existentially than intellectually Uh, and that's rightly so but i i get the feeling too that it's not just the uh the literary artifact that's changing but but the author himself um and i think that's quite quite beautiful yeah and i i think i particularly appreciated the honing in on and and this seems true to me and this is my just me talking like that seems true to me that the more there is at stake the more immediate our uh path before us becomes um and abbot zerky is that how you're saying it in your head in my head, I've been saying Zerchi, although he does, and I think he Latinizes it at one point as Zerchius. So yeah, so maybe, yeah. I don't let's, know. Let's say Zerchi. Zer- I like it. More, well, I, well, okay, all right. Look how nice <laughs> we are to each other. Um, <laughs> he, uh, Abbot Z. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he is so concerned with saving this child. Yes. And everything seems to ride on that. And and that becomes the thing in front of him. When the world is ending, he wants to save this one soul uh-huh. uh, from destruction. And of course the baby is, of course the baby is symbolic of all of us. Of course, uh, this is a the, this baby is representative of the human race, like the <laughs> decaying, falling apart, like deeply sick. Uh human race and the loss of the next generation like we're supposed to grieve that no more children will grow up in the like on this planet ever and uh if they're right about their predictions um but at the same time for him that felt so human and so yes. true, that rang so true to me that things would shrink, everything would kind of come to a point and, and that point would be everything. Like everything would be at stake there. I thought that yeah, was- Yeah, and that, that that's not, in some ways it's not a, a, a change or a shift. All right, there has there is this vocation that we've kind of been tracking all throughout the novel uh, that the the order of, uh, Leibowitz has, uh, which is the you know, the remembering and the preserving of of culture, uh, and he does see to that first, right? He makes sure that everybody is makes it on the plane and the the memorabilia are headed to space, and so that's all taken care of. Uh, but then uh, that doesn't the the vocation of the monks it doesn't cease at that point. Right. Uh, is is sort of the the core of their vocation that has always existed is 
revealed more objectively. Uh, and so he can focus uh, so directly on, uh, yeah, this this very uh, imminent example of of what the and the church has always been concerned with, which is compassion on those who are suffering, but also uh, you know the the holding back from those who you know would stumble into sin. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. So. Does the novel raise the question of whether or not it's worth it, what they have done over the 4,000 years, as it said, of the the order of Leibowitz, the, the book Lakers, the protecting of the memorabilia, uh, which never comes back. I, I thought there was going to be some moment. I wondered if there might be some moment in which, you know, this... Uh, diagram ends up having some kind of practical oh, yeah. value and you know they're at, the monks in space need to fix some part <laughs> of it and like look the memorabilia has the answer right um which would be pretty cheap and so i didn't really expect yeah. it but right well, um, that didn't happen yeah uh but the fact that it didn't is that meant to raise questions about the value of the order? How are we meant to wrestle with we're at the end and and so what? I mean, I, the easy answer is yes. I think the novel does raise that question. <laughs> but you're right. Uh, the, the relevance of that part of their project does seem to fade away. It gets displaced. Uh, and yet, I think um, it depends maybe on our our implicit assumptions about the memorabilia up mm-hmm. to this point. Um, I assume that the monk's work continues and that the memorabilia, whatever it is that they're taking with them, uh, is no longer just an unidentified hodgepodge of <laughs> uh, prehistorical blueprints, but uh, is again, you know, maybe more uh, akin to our own uh, medieval monastic history uh, is uh, a more intact and intelligible uh, record of human culture, the, the best bits and maybe some of the worst bits too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I think the the question about whether or not the trip to space is worth it subsumes and maybe settles the the question about whether the project of the monks was of any value because they have preserved something that will continue and they have opted to to preserve it further. Right. Yeah, I I liked I thought it was very I mean, beautifully done. We've already talked about kind of this honing down to a point. Uh, And it would be easy to ask the question then, like, what does the memorabilia have to offer to a woman and her dying child? Yeah. Right. Um, And I think it is is beautiful that the memorabilia does fade to the background. There is a sense in which part of the novel's answer is um, on a on a cosmic scale that matters uh but it's not it's also not the thing that matters 
Right. Yeah, I think that that's right. Because the thing that <laughs> that the order has to offer to a woman and her dying child is the abbot. It's it's yeah. the it's the person. It's the man. It's the human right. who is who because he has been protecting and preserving with within an existing tradition in a in a fallen and falling world because he's there uh then he's able not through the memorabilia not through the memorabilia but through himself by the giving of himself to be present uh at and to stand between death and this girl even though it seems like death is going to set her free but yeah. if he's right if the monks are right then he is the he's he is the one standing between her and true death eternal death yeah. and and that's because he was there protecting and preserving and but it wasn't just protecting and preserving it was also as you know labore et labore, et labore right like it is to work and to pray the work is to preserve the memorabilia, but the work is also to continue this unbroken continuity of worship and tradition down the ages to the point that they're still speaking Latin at the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so there's there seems to be a much wider vision than just the preservation of isolated bits of knowledge and relics uh, that Walter Miller brings to the conversation um, and, and answers, or at least attempts to speak into the question of why, why, so what, what does it matter? Yeah, and I think that the as the world has changed around the monks, uh, maybe they've also de-emphasized the memorabilia. And that, as I think you put it really well, that uh, they have always been preserving and uh, uh, stewarding, but not just the uh, detritus of you know ancient culture. Uh, but there is there is this living uh, liturgical tradition that they are also uh, the daily stewards of, and that is the thing that has. Uh, in parts of the novel, uh, the world maybe has more in common or shares more in common. And then in this third age, uh, very much does not, right? The government is, uh, in the second part, you know, the government is uh, sort of giving lip service to religion uh, or uh, we get several references even in this third part to uh, the, like the heretical or heterodox you know, that's right. uh, re yep. religion of the ruling party. schismatics. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Uh, and, but here there's no pretense at all. Uh, and the arms of the government are, are pro pro death, anti-God, uh, unabashedly. So, and so of the things that the monks have always been preserving and stewarding, obviously the, the one that is most needful now becomes very uh, clear. That's right. And then it was might have been always that all along, right? Right. Right. Um, it makes me think of. Have you seen the Glass Onion? That. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it's like that, right? Would you burn the Mona Lisa to save a soul? Right? Yeah. Um, and that is, I, I don't know if I would. I guess I would do it to save <laughs> a soul. But yeah, I don't pick a harder poem or pick a harder painting. I mean, the Mona Lisa is yeah. easy. I, it's yeah. stupid. <laughs> Yes, but that 
it's it's a good question um and monuments men that movie monuments men raises the same question too Mm -hmm. and because you and i are and many of our listeners are the kinds of people who care about the preservation of culture uh and and not everybody does anymore right but i do you do and so many of our listeners do and and that's like a vocation upon which i have built my life um but the reason for that is not for the thing itself. It's for the thing it's pointing to. Right. It's it's for how God shines through that. And I don't want the I don't want the that's that's that artifact through which God shows his truth self. I don't want that to be lost. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. But it is always for the sake of something higher. Uh and 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 I, I, I just think in this final section, when things are just naked, good and evil, as you've said, um, then we we really know, like, it wasn't about the memorabilia, although the memorabilia is worth saving because it yeah. is part of our human heritage. Uh, but always, always, it was, that was something under the authority of Christ, preserved by the church and offered back to God. Yeah, and and even even in the mission to space, the memorabilia is secondary to right, human souls, right? children, women, men, priests, uh, you know, who can consecrate the sacrament. That's what's that's what's being sent on to continue. Right, right. Um. So okay, so we have a couple of like ambiguous things to discuss. Yeah, let's get the ambiguous I'm things out bit- there. I'm a bit hesitant. Let's start with the easy one then. <laughs> what are we to make of the return of the Jew here? Um, La, uh, he calls himself here Lazarus. Right. Right. Um, so what's up with that, Sean? What's up with that? Yeah. I I wish I I wish I had a good certain 100% answer. I know, and that's the easiest one, in my opinion. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and maybe it's safer to speculate also yeah. because of the way he's presented. Uh, it's hard to know, even because of the nature of the character, how literally to take the things that he says or that things say, or the characters say about him. Uh, so here, he's talked about as if he is the Lazarus uh, of uh biblical resurrection fame <laughs> and that um one of the priests who's this relating the kind of urban myth around this guy is that uh he then is lazarus called recalled from the grave by jesus uh but then who never embraces christianity which i don't know this history is somewhat silent on, <laughs> on that fact i guess uh but that's a possible explanation for this figure then, uh, that he is um, this odd representative of humanity that has experienced the uh, resurrecting power of God uh, and yet not embraced the source of that that power or that life. And therefore, he's sort of tortured to walk the earth in some kind of weird limbo. Uh, or if that's just the latest identity that he has taken for himself. Uh, because even in part two, we found him saying new things about himself, telling a more developed story about himself. Uh, but 
I don't think there's any way around the fact that he is the same guy and he's still alive. And for whatever reason, he's sort of tangled up in the uh, the myth of Leibowitz as well. I don't know. What, what do you got? Yeah, I I like that. Like, I thought it was Leibowitz himself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, well, hold on. But I don't uh, think that's right. So I, because I've entertained that thought too. Do you think that that would mean, if it was Leibowitz? Yeah. Is it possible, because this is a common thread throughout the novel too, is it possible that Leibowitz founded the order not in a sincerity of faith, but out of a desire to preserve, you know, material and technological culture, and that uh, he found co-laborers that had a different mission, and so that this tradition grew up around him and in his name, but he himself never embraced it, and so that's why he's brought back and he always Left has a satirical smile, right? Yeah. Um, like he's like laughing, but happy. Like it, he's he's all in, but and and the the thing though, it, I don't like that interpretation. I don't want that to be yeah. the case. But I okay. think the novel leaves it open to that. Um, yeah. With, uh, a, and I think another element that leaves it open to that interpretation is the poet who is now a saint at the end of the novel, in spite of the fact that he did not live it. We know about his life and he was not a saint. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and that the only artifact he leaves behind is this slim volume that has this like weird Cartesian inversion at the end of it. Right. <laughs> um, and I, so there does seem to be a thread of an acknowledgement that legend that that legend takes on a life of its own. Yeah. And that and and if I again, that's not my favorite interpretation. I don't love that, but that's because I'm a Christian, right? Um and <laughs> so but I think that the novel leaves it open to that. I think it's fair to to extrapolate that. Um, but I think that there's another way to think about it too. Um, and, and one that I think that Walter Miller is very kind and careful in, um, in an overtly Catholic novel um, in yeah. which the, uh, the monks, especially the abbots are the heroes of the story. Uh, and, um, and yet there's this thread of the Judeo part of the Judeo Christian tradition that keeps yeah. recurring, um, and reminding us of its presence, um, and, and, and being fundamental and miraculous and ever present. And I think that that's really important in a novel that was written, uh, within a generation of World War II, right. um, about, uh, uh, about the nuclear holocaust um and we had another holocaust that happened at the time of of the world wars uh that that had just as far reaching a devastation and ought to be remembered in a novel like this and so i i appreciate it um the presence of 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 the judeo tradition yeah um and i i think that's really important and i respect it and so maybe that's a, a satisfying enough explanation mm -hmm. uh, as to why this figure is preserved and and remains to be, you know, continues to be seen throughout the novel. Right. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we already well, I will, oh, go ahead. I will I just want to add that the the poet is was considered a saint only among those heterodox schismatics from Texarkana, oh, that's right? That's right. That's right. To um, just to be fair, to get that on the record. Yes. Right. Who knows what they're talking about? Yeah. Um, that's true. I appreciate you saying that. And he's ambiguous amongst them. Like they're asking questions about the saint yeah, right. or about the poet. And um, there was an interesting comment over on the Substack uh, about um, about the poet um, positing that um, that perhaps the poet is representative of the poetic tradition, right? The literary yeah. tradition, which is not yeah. quite secular and not quite sacred, uh, but straddles in between and has this whole other way of viewing uh, and talking about making sense of the world, imagining reality. Uh, that is this middle ground between the sacred and the secular. Uh, and yeah. and 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 he maybe maybe the poet kind of occupies that space within the novel. Yeah, although uh, there be something slightly disappointing about that yeah I agree. Uh, in that this poet doesn't change anybody's mind right <laughs> or uh and maybe changing minds is not always the the highest goal but uh this poet doesn't persuade the the tone is cynical uh one of his works is a dialogue in which both parties uh disprove the ability to disprove the existence of god uh, and then another dialogue in which both parties uh, agree that the existence of God can be uh, proved, and but that it doesn't doesn't have any practical effect <laughs> on either of them. Uh, and this seems like a very uh, kind of impotent and cynical uh, place for that tradition to end. I agree. Yeah. I th yeah. So I hope that I hope it's something I hope there's <laughs> it's more complicated than that yeah. um, so or maybe it's what, just that maybe it's just a you know a, a funny story about the weird things that humans tend so. to latch on to yeah maybe so that's fine too um what are we to make of this uh these verses that the poet leaves behind the poet's saint um, the satirical dialogue in verse between two agnostics attempting to establish by natural reason alone that the existence of God could not be established by natural reason alone. And that the conclusion is, what's the Latin? Non. Oh, non we don't think, therefore we are not. <laughs> yes. If we don't, we don't think, therefore we are not. Which what is, page are you course, on? Uh, this is 302 and 302. we okay. have the same book. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and that's what that's what I mean, uh, because there's uh, yeah, it's just so it's just so goofy and cynical. Is it literally uh, true? Is this like a thesis statement for the book? I was reading online, and there's yeah. multiple multiple articles about how this is his whole point, right? And as that in, as because in we, have not... we have lost our way, we have lost our existence because we do not think anymore. Therefore, we, we are to not. Think, and right? to think about this thing in particular, and therefore we have annihilated ourselves. Yes. Is this, yeah. uh, uh, what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that's really reasonable, especially, and I know that in, 
a lot of cases, he lifts uh, known Latin phrases, uh, especially the liturgical Latin. But in other places, he is composing the Latin. And there are a few instances where he could negate something with the word known, but instead chooses to negate with the word nihil, uh, which isn't just not, but nothing. Uh, and obviously is is the root of our word annihilation. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I don't think that that's accidental. I think that there are times when he definitely chooses that on purpose and leans into that on purpose. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting to me because in some ways I think it is Descartes' cogitoirco sum that has gotten on gotten us into this trouble, right? Yeah. <laughs> Here we are because of Descartes. Thanks, Descartes. <laughs> um, I think therefore I am, right? Really? Uh, and it, it began this, I mean, the Enlightenment and everything that Descartes brings this Cartesian kind of distinction between thinking and, and being that, um, or overlap. It, it's such shoddy thinking, right? And yeah. and so if it gets inverted, if if it is true then that what happens then if we do not think, that means that we are not, right? It's a very profound contemplation i think embedded within this novel and to give it to our poet yeah uh, in the context fair. of this uh this imaginary satirical dialogue yeah and even uh, right it gets at the heart of the the cartesian project too which was to divorce the basis for our thinking uh, and for our drawing truth conclusions from the existence of God. Right. Yeah, I'll I'll give him that. Although I I give that point to Walter Miller and not to the po <laughs> to the poet uh who I think still comes off as something of a cynic. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. And I like that that's the note that the novel leaves it on to. Uh Abbott Zerke soon tired of trying to decide whether the book was high intellectual comedy or more epigrammatic buffoonery. Yeah, that's perfect. And then he moves on again, like we said already, to to real concerns. Right, this is when he spots the death camp uh, right. down the road. Yeah. Right, but it's probably not an accident that those two moments coincide. That's exactly yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean I just think that this is very. Uh, we're barely even scratching the surface. Of oh, I know it's so it's so <laughs> tight. It's so well constructed. There's so much here. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe this is his he only wrote two. Yeah. Like how did he write and, this first? Like, and by all accounts, the other one is not. Yeah, that's what no, I hear too. I haven't no, read it's it. It's a lesser work. Yeah. Okay. So before we end, we really have to talk about Rachel. Let's talk about and Rachel. The conclusion of the novel. Yeah. Um what first of all, I will say when I read the dream that brother Joshua has. Oh yeah. I was like, I had to put the book down and walk was, away. Yeah. Yep. I was like, this is just, it made me feel sick. Yeah. Um, I I could see where it was going at the beginning. Like when he first, Oh, I could see where you're going at the beginning of the dream. And I'm like, please don't go to immaculate conception. Please don't do it. And then of course he did. And <laughs> I, I don't even believe in the immaculate conception, but I, um, I was so sickened by the dream. Yeah. 
And so, ugh. But there's a turn, right? Rachel becomes this innocent, immaculate being. Boy, and even even on rereads, that always takes me, catches me off guard. The Rachel seems I, right up until the moment that she offers him the host. Yeah. Uh, she seems so sinister. I know. Well, I was like, don't touch the host. Don't yeah, like, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. And even, even, there's even this hair's breadth of a moment after she has touched it and before she gives it to him that it all seems like such bad news uh and then there is this weird unexpected turn there a turn to what even i'm not right so (laughs) what does that 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 reaction to rachel's two-headed which by the way so much foreshadowing to the two-headed um moment at the end right like there's two-headed creatures in or uh in every single there's two-headed humans the pope's children and all of the sections um and when we first meet mrs grails uh we um are she's a kind of a comic figure Mm -hmm. um but then as i started thinking about her i was like she's actually going to become important i can feel it um because of her name right (laughs) Um, (laughs) like she's like a grail figure like in the earth in legend right she is she is carrying something holy and so what could that be it's got to be the second head that won't get baptized like there's going to be a turn with this head i can feel it Yep. But what is it? Like, what is the turn, Sean? Do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> what uh, are we supposed to make of Rachel? I really, I I really don't know. Uh, there's something, uh, I think, I think even the novel kind of conflates what's going on there. Uh, there's something angelic about Rachel, something inhuman. Um, but then also something extra human as all of humanity is dying. Rachel comes to life uh, and seems to be this young, innocent creature. Uh, so there is this sort of re recreation or even maybe this is the one like, taste of uh, a resurrection life that we get in the novel. But she's clearly presented as a being of another order. Uh, we have that moment like it echoes several moments in the Bible uh, where a figure uh, either does some deference to someone, to another being, or tries to confer a blessing on another being, and they're interrupted because the order is wrong. Right. And so he goes to baptize her and she recoils. And at first you think, oh, man, it's because she's some sort of crazy demon. Uh, but then the implication of her next action, the giving of the sacrament to him, is that it's not fitting that he baptize her because uh, she's the one 
with this this right or this um, blessing to bestow a sacrament upon him, uh, making her the the greater and him the lesser. And what we're supposed to do with that, I I don't know. Is Rachel Christ? <laughs> is is Rachel? Uh, uh, yeah, just Walter Miller's own conception of post-human humanity. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But I, she she seems like she's going to be something bad, and she ends up being something not bad. Right, right. Something grotesque that turns out to be sacramental. And you yeah. yourself drew an earlier parallel to Flannery O'Connor. And I wonder if Walter yeah. Miller's trying to do something similar here, uh, that the that the that the depravity of the world has led to uh such a misshapen, monstrous, deformed human uh and that, you know, cast off by all society, hated by themselves, right? Um, you know, she, Mrs. Grails so poignantly uh, is wants to forgive God for making her this way. Um, yeah. And and he wrestles with that as a spiritual leader, uh, but comes to the conclusion that within her kind of simplistic framing of the world, that that's a fair um, kind of like a release uh, um, an important spiritual moment for her, uh, even if even if he wouldn't put it that way theologically, right? right. And and that makes sense, like this kind of self loathing um, that the Pope's children are going going to have, and 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 to us, it's to us, it's so grotesque and unthinkable, and and but to Christ, they are of course the least of these, yeah. right? um, and. And to Christ, all of them are as fully human as you or I. Um, and even within the context of the story, we can't get there, right? Like we can't see them as truly and fully human. And and I think that that's as 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 Rachel was kind of coming to life. Um, and you again, like you said, you just think like, why is she smiling at me? That's really creepy. That's clearly yeah. going to be like a demon, this is sinister. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but. Instead, it's this innocence, this purity of heart. And I think it's very significant that this innocent creation begins first imitating everything she sees around her, but in God in his mercy gives her a priest to imitate, right? Um, That her first words and her first actions are sacramental and holy, even in the midst of this Holocaust and this horror that's falling around her. Um, and that she is rising out of the decaying flesh, out of the death of the old way. She right. is rising. And so I don't think we're intended, I don't think that we're meant to like uh, make something of the two-headed thing as much as we are yeah. to just see her as um, as grotesque and um, and and our expectations are subverted. And then we, as the reader, see ourselves as complicit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we realize mm-hmm. how quick we are to judge. Um, even though we want to judge the people in the book for judging. Um, <laughs> and I, so I, I think that, and, and the other thing that came to me was the whole idea of, of the scriptural name of Rachel, right? The Rachel weeping for her children. Weeping for her children, yeah. Um, and then isn't the, this is probably reaching, but maybe not. Come on. The, uh, 
the ship that rescues Ishmael and Moby Dick is the Rachel, right? Oh. I think oh, that that's that right. right. Um, and so I thought maybe crazy. there's this like rescue image um, yeah. that's, and that's connected to these dying children that are, um, yeah. you know, the mercy camp is right there. Right. And maybe there's some kind of providential rescue um, that is ordained, or at least we're meant to connect to in some way. Yeah. And that even, you know, though, though the children haven't been put to death by their own parents, they have still been slaughtered by men. Yes. Uh, right. right. The, the ultimate, the ultimate cause of <laughs> the, all of the deaths at the end is the, the wicked acts of men. And so R- Rachel also seems to be this kind of, um, figure who then remains to weep for all of those who have been destroyed and kind of sort of humanity as a whole that rachel is something else and so that is the one aspect of the two-headedness that seems to be important is the one waxes as the other wanes and uh uh humanity has sort of ironically shunned creatures like like rachel or beings like rachel but also hated itself so much <laughs> that it's that has just destroyed itself right. and and in that you know ironic turn then this new kind of being yeah these pope's children uh take the place of uh, the humanity that despised them but also destroyed itself that's right i think that's i think that's right uh and i i also think that uh, there's, I, it almost feels like this, the, um, the confession and the allusion to abortion is kind of like dragged into the story. Yeah. Um, that you're like, wait, hold on. Where did abortion come from? Right. <laughs> um, but it's very clear from the confession. It seems clear to me from the confession that she is, mm-hmm. that Mrs. Grails is confessing to an abortion yeah. and, um, and, and then, and then, <laughs> In in that same kind of giving back of the sin, right? She's able to then bear the suffering of that sin and bear the redemption of that sin by Rachel coming to life. And she wants Rachel to be baptized like a daughter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a psychological complexity in that as well as a spiritual kind of full circle moment. The same thing that happens with, with Abbot Zerki uh, with his legs crushed as he had crushed the cat and yeah. as you know then and he's able to bear that and be saved by it and the same thing with maybe rachel in this abortion and that even to the very end like god is continuing to bring uh the history of an individual full circle just as he's bringing the history of all of the human race and the created order full circle i um, mean those cycles exist on the individual as well as the communal and planetary level within the novel it's complex yeah yeah that's right what a book man <laughs> and we're like barely scratching the surface so as we come to an end of our conversation <laughs> uh Sean what I mean, do you have final thoughts or even ideas for um next steps for people that are like, hey, there's here's another thing to think about with the book? 
Well, that's hard to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't try and move on from right. this part. I, I think you just have to sit with it. Uh, like your legs are trapped under five tons of rust. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's the, the final chapter, uh, you know, is a mostly pleasant scene to contemplate. Uh, you could, you could just dwell there and maybe, maybe we haven't really entirely circled back to that question. Uh, is this ultimately a hopeful right. novel? And uh, I think, as you say, we don't see what will become of this group that's going into space. And even the abbot thinks that to himself. You know, I've talked a good game saying goodbye to everybody on the airplane, but who knows, you know, what the reality is really going to look like. Uh, but it is a it is a beautiful and hopeful scene. Uh, they're singing as they lift the children into the ship and uh the there's that very poignant shaking the dust from their feet as they close the hatch and uh yeah but no i i don't i don't think there are future steps you just have to say right. so is this does the book end in hope i think so so do i yeah yeah i think that the this makes you the end of the book makes you want to be a human being Yes, uh, I think rather than the opposite, rather than persuading you that you don't want to right. be a human being. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think it's I think it's hopeful for sure. Although I think if I was a materialist, if I I, I don't know how I would interpret the end of the novel. I would I would interpret it as the monks in space are our only hope, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're given a list of the problems with the colony, right? Within, yeah. we don't, uh, earlier, um, which I thought was kind of brilliant. <laughs> that mm -hmm. was great. Uh, I, I think that the novel is for sure hopeful in, in the sense that in an imminent Cold War, the time in which it was written, when we were really wrestling with not just with with an entirely concrete expectation that humanity was about to destroy itself in nuclear holocaust. Yeah. This book gives a vision for not just a spiritual future, but a but a real and compelling uh cultural engagement, like on a social level. Yeah. Uh, that we hope that it would never come to this kind of thing, but but he, we keep going. Right? There is an element of the triumph of the human spirit, just as much as there is an element, the larger element of this spiritual reality of right. the church on earth, um, and the church militant and the church triumphant. I think, but we also have, like, this is what people would do. <laughs> in the event that everything was lost and we had two-headed humans wandering around and like somebody would save the book somebody yeah. would dedicate people their would, lives people would make a go of it we would and yeah. it wouldn't it it 
and and then we could we would be able to revive the problem is we would also repeat the cycle yeah. and so there is a call to social action i think within the story that is just as compelling as um as the spiritual interpretation mm, agreed um so yeah i think it's I think it's brilliant. I'm so glad we read it. I was not prepared for it. Thank you very much for recommending it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we did it. Yeah. All right. So no more final thoughts? No. All right. Well, next week, uh, which I guess is, you know, next week is Thanksgiving. That's next week for us. But our listeners will be listening to this on, on the Monday. Thanksgiving. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. We are thankful for you. I know that sounds cheesy, but I wish that, I wish <laughs> there was a true. way to say that that didn't that doesn't sound cheesy, <laughs> right? Because we are so grateful for your investments, your uh, your investment in us, and uh, and in this podcast, and how we have created this reading community all across the nation and even beyond. That we're able to read these books and think together, and um, so. Thank you very much to our listeners. We are thankful yeah, for is, you. It is a privilege. Happy Thanksgiving. Eat some pie for me. <laughs> right. Dedicated bite, but not pumpkin. What's your favorite pie? <laughs> What's your favorite Thanksgiving pie, Sean? Whoa. These are two different I questions. I know. I, I, I hoped it. I narrowed it. I do. I try to not eat pumpkin pie at other times of the year so that I can relish it. Because I do find that I top out on pumpkin pie pretty fast, but I can, man, there's nothing better when the time is right. Uh, I, a pie that I have had around Thanksgiving at certain times, I mean, I live in the South now, so pecan pie is a big one. Um, but I remember from my childhood, uh, like chess pies or custard pies around the holidays. Um, and those were always, really enjoyable but i like a i'm a sucker for a good fruit pie too uh, what do you make at what's a specialty thanksgiving dish in the johnson household uh we usually make my wife makes a, a phenomenal green bean casserole from scratch mm -hmm. uh, like she makes she makes the mushroom base and i fry the onions and uh but I always make uh, my uh, creamed Parmesan Brussels sprout dish. I am going to make that for Thanksgiving. You gave me that recipe. <laughs> I have made it like four times since you gave it to me, and I am making oh, it. Man. On yep, it's that's the one. Yeah, you should post that on Substack if you're willing <laughs> to share that. because yeah. it is delicious. So yeah. you should all make this close yeah, readers. And take pictures of it and post it so Sean can see. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Yes. Um, so tag tag Sean. Uh, yeah. I and what pies do you all have? Do you switch it off or do you have traditional pies? We uh, sometimes we switch it up, but we usually do traditional pies. Uh, my wife will usually make a pumpkin pie. We make an apple pie. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have. I do like. Uh, Things like a cranberry cobbler. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I am. I don't really 
I'm not crazy about pumpkin pie. I could take it or leave it. Yeah. Any time of the year. I just am like, it's very mid to me, which mid is a word <laughs> I just learned from my children. <laughs> from your young people. From my, that's right. Yeah. From, yes. And so I am super cool. So of course I'm using right. it. Yeah, um, okay. So pumpkin pie to me is mid. <laughs> um, but I always make it because other people love it. Oh. And then I will make an additional pumpkin dessert. I have this fantastic recipe for that I will be making. Um, but I'm not sure when. I might make it earlier in the week uh, because I think pumpkin pie is what people will want on Thanksgiving. But it's yeah. a pumpkin spice latte cake. Oh. So I'm like... I use like chai and some mm -hmm. uh, in the cake, and then I add espresso grounds. Oh yeah, to the frosting. So that it's sounds like, all right. Yeah, it's delicious. Um, and then I like a crumble topping on my apple pie, uh -huh. and I am particular about that. And so I always make it that way on Thanksgiving. That's how I like it, and That's I'm how you like it. You want something done right? Do it yourself. <laughs> Scott always yeah. he prefers the lattice top, but uh, I yeah. like a crumble top on my apple. <laughs> so. All right. Well, happy Thanksgiving cooking to you yeah, yeah. and to all of our close readers. Uh, and we will be back next week with the QA. So please post your uh questions and yeah, comments. Give us those barn burners. That's right. Uh for for the Canticle for Leibowitz. I I expect that that will lead to some pretty rich conversation about some things that we didn't get a chance to get to. Yeah. And even harder conversations about the things that we didn't talk about nearly enough. That's exactly right. All right. All right. Well, for the absent David Kern, for Sean Johnson, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving and happy reading. Happy reading.